0: The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The reason the Son of God appeared... Was to destroy the works of the devil. The word of the Lord. Good morning. This morning, as Zach
1: said, we're starting a new sermon series on uh, how the cross works, considering what actually happens at the cross to affect our reconciliation to God. If I were to ask you, or better yet, imagine if someone was to come to you, an acquaintance or a friend, and said to you, you know, I know that you are serious about this Christianity thing. I know that you are serious about your faith, but frankly, the the cross, the bloodiness, the sacrifice of a son, it's always weirded me out a little bit. Why is the cross so important? What role does it play for you in your faith? How would you answer that question? How would you explain to someone the importance of the cross? The New Testament speaks to the, uh, the effect of the cross or describes what the cross accomplishes in at least ten different motifs or images. And it's something like a multifaceted jewel. If we were to consider only one facet of the jewel, right, we, it would be too, too focused. We would lose the beauty of the entire gem. And so in the course of this sermon series, what we're trying to do is remind ourselves of all the facets of the gem so that we have the greatest appreciation we can of how the cross works. Now, in historic or systematic theology, what we're talking about is uh, theories of the atonement. Atonement is an English word, and it refers to our at-oneness with God. It's about how we, being alienated from God, have been brought back, to be unified to Him, to participate in His fellowship despite our sin and rebellion. The image we're starting with today is the oldest image. It is the oldest theory of the atonement. It dominated the church for the first 1,000 years of its history and continues to be an important aspect of understanding the atonement because the New Testament uses, speaks in this language so frequently. It is typically referred to in its Latin name, which is Christus Victor, which you probably could figure out, means Christ the victor. Because it's the oldest view, it's also sometimes referred to as the classic view of the atonement. And at the heart of this understanding of the atonement is this notion that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. How does the cross work? Well, if we look at the cross through the lens of Christus victor, the emphasis is that Satan has been defeated at the cross. That's what we're after understanding this morning, right? how that works and the implications of how that works. And to do so, I want to raise three questions with you, and hopefully we'll come to decent answers as a result of considering these three questions. Number one, what is your biggest problem? Now, not in the sense of being frustrated with someone saying, what's your problem? Right, But what is humanity's biggest problem? Number two, How does Jesus solve that problem on the cross? And number three, what difference does it make to remember that Satan is defeated at the cross? So number one is the biggest problem. Number two, how does Jesus take care of that problem on the cross? And number three, what difference does it make? Why is it important that we're talking about this and remembering this language? So first, what is your biggest problem? It would be actually, I think, really fun to ask everybody, what's your biggest problem? A child might say, well, my sibling is my biggest problem. A teen might say, my parent is my biggest problem. An adult say, might focus in on one particular aspect of their story at any given time. My finances are my biggest problem. I think most of you, if you pause and thought about it theologically, a fairly common answer we would get in the congregation is sin is my biggest problem. Now, there is a lot of truth to that. Right? We're certainly not going to deny that. But it's probably not the answer you would have gotten around the first century. If you ask God's people what their biggest problem was, right, at the time that Jesus is arriving on the scene, you would probably hear something like, well, there are spiritual forces that are arrayed against God's people. And they exercise all of their will and their intent on discouraging us and enable and discouraging us from obeying from dis- discouraging us from righteousness discouraging us from following God and until we are helpless against these forces because they're stronger than we are and until someone steps in and handles these forces we are helpless and hopeless now why would i suggest to you that that would be the answer in the first century Well, we have to go back and appreciate some of Scripture's themes and the passages that we read this morning to see how this plays out. When we go back into the Old Testament, we're reminded that in the Old Testament, an incredibly important theme was that of warfare. Warfare that was happening on a spiritual realm, warfare that was happening on an earthly realm, and the warfares that happened in those places intersected continuously, the warfare that's happening on spiritual realms is something that bears out in our human condition. Now, we could see this in a number of places. Let me give you four quick examples. All right. First, if you want to talk about evil and chaos in the ancient world, right, what's really, if you want to talk about the scariest thing imaginable, you, you wouldn't talk about a wicked human being, right, as we might. You would talk about, actually, the sea. The sea is the embodiment of... Uh, of chaos. It's unpredictable. It's strong. Most of the ancient world doesn't know how to navigate it. And what's really scary is nobody knows what's down there. Right? And so most ancient cultures, including Judaism, believe that somewhere down there are the dead. Right? Not only that, but it's where monsters live. Leviathan. Now, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, or in the Hebrew story, Yahweh is alone strong enough to bring order to the waters... And to defeat the sea monsters. In fact, it even speaks of him killing them and dividing them up for food. That he exercises complete strength over that embodiment of chaos and evil. Yahweh is strong and he exercises that strength over those powers. If you want an example, Psalm 74 is an excellent place to consider that kind of theology or that voice in the Old Testament. That's number one. Number two. If you think about Daniel, right? remember Daniel is being aided at various times by angels. Uh, but at one point in chapter 10 of Daniel, the archangel Michael shows up and he says, I'm sorry I've been delayed. I was held up. Why? The prince of Persia was delaying me. Right? This is the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia is a demonic figure. Michael's been held up and then he says, here, I'm here to help. Uh, know that we're for you and now I'm off to visit the prince of Greece. So again, we see an earthly realm that is intimately affected with the warfare that's going on beyond it, right? And the two intersect. Consider another one. In Second uh, Samuel 5, Daniel's engaged in his campaign with the Philistines, and he, uh, things aren't going that well. So he prays. God says, uh, listen, go hide in the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of troops marching in the balsam trees, you know that my forces are moving before yours. Then you may go and engage the Philistines. Again. The two worlds of warfare intersecting. One more, 2 Kings 5, kind of a scary one, in which uh, Israel's fighting against Moab and uh, things aren't going well for Moab. So what does the king of Moab do? He sacrifices his oldest son to their God. After which the scriptures record that Israel suffered a very great wrath. In other words, the scriptures present that this sacrifice to the God of the Moabites was effective, and that's the reason Israel was defeated that day. Four different pictures of this warfare that's going on in which humans are either helped or suffer under these forces, these principalities, these powers that exist above and beyond us. Right? This is a, a, um, a consistent and uh, pervasive theology in the Old Testament which not only grows more significant as you approach the New Testament, but it receives greater clarity as you enter into the New Testament because the focus uh, comes to be uh, drawn upon Satan, uh, particularly in the 200 years approaching the New Testament, and then certainly once you enter the New Testament. In other words, as God continues to grant more revelation so that we understand more about the world, we realize that there's one significant leader in this capacity. And he is, uh, and it's Satan. So by the time you get to the New Testament, consider the language that is used to speak of Satan. Jesus calls him numerous times the ruler of this world. Or consider when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. What does he offer to him? All the kingdoms of the earth. He has the authority to give to Jesus should he uh, reject the will of the Father. In Revelation 11, all kingdoms are defined by being one kingdom under Satan. And Paul will call him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. Right? The New Testament takes Satan and his authority in this world incredibly seriously. Uh, in fact, while the New Testament acknowledges that Jesus is the cosmic Lord, it would say emphatically that the person who's really running the show uh, here in terms of this temporal reality is the prince of the power of the air is Satan himself. And this is why when Jesus comes on the scene, there's such emphasis in his doing battle with Satan. Right? In fact, Peter in uh, Acts 10 will summarize Jesus' entire ministry at, that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now, quick question. How did Satan come by such authority? If you've been in RPC classes, you have a pretty good idea, right? because Zach has been walking us through some of this. In short, right, what we're saying here to understand the authority of Satan is to realize that that authority was initially ours and it was abdicated. In other words, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, to be the caretakers, to be the custodians, to be the vice regents, to be the viceroys over this created order. And when we chose to heed Satan's words rather than God's words, in essence, we crowned Satan. We abdicated our authority, and for reasons that are not completely disclosed to us in Scripture, he stepped into that role or received that authority over this domain. Now, straight up, that's not spelled out emphatically in Scripture, but I know of no other way to understand or explain the authority and titles that are afforded to Satan in the New Testament, other than to say it was the abdication of our created authority, at which point Satan was permitted to take on that authority. So if I was to ask you what your biggest problem is, perhaps you might like to rethink that question in light of the situation that Scripture presents, but also as a first-century person. Is sin a big issue? Yes, but sin is really, in some ways, a manifestation of the spiritual forces that have been rallied against us, that attack us and oppose us and bear down upon us, and we should all feel probably a little bit ill to our stomachs because, right? Why does Satan have all this authority? Well, because we crowned him. Right? We said, God, I would rather listen to Satan's words and counsel than to your words and counsel, and how much of a mess has resulted? Well, if we've got a very big problem, right, we need a very big solution, and this leads us to our second question: How does Jesus solve this problem of Satan and the principalities and the powers at the cross? Well, in John chapter twelve, Jesus will say, "Now is the judgment of this world; now will the ruler of this world be cast out." In First John three uh, eight b, which we read this morning, John says that it was. Uh, Jesus' ministry to destroy the works of the devil. And as we read uh, Acts 2, which is the first sermon of Scripture, the first sermon of the the community informed by the resurrection, Peter is explaining to those gathered at Pentecost that Jesus has indeed defeated Satan. How is he doing that? He's quoting Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is an incredibly important psalm within Judaism. And it is, depending on how you count, uh, it is probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Why was Psalm 110 so important? Because it paints a picture of someone who is going to come that is both king and priest. And it's a king of such exceptional quality that he's superior to David. And his priesthood is never going to diminish. It's never going to fade. And so in Judaism, they say, well, who is this person going to be? And ultimately, you have a messianic theology develop as they look forward to who the fulfillment may be. And Peter stands up at Pentecost and says, yes, this person we crucified, that was him. He fulfilled Psalm 110. But for Peter to say, all of his enemies have been made a footstool under his feet, any person standing at Pentecost would have said, oh, if Psalm 110 has been fulfilled by Jesus, that means that Satan has been defeated and is now under Jesus' feet as his footstool. Right? If the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of Satan has been overthrown. This is, why, uh, this is what Peter is communicating as he preaches uh, the first sermon in uh, the book of Acts. And we see that there is a, a, a cosmic victory. You know, as we're approaching this notion of what Jesus is doing, Uh, particularly through the lens of Christus Victor. One helpful image comes from Luke, where Jesus tells a parable that, uh, you know, as as long as the strong man is over the house, his goods, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger comes in and binds up the strong man, then the house may be plundered. That is Christus Victor. Jesus is saying, I have come... And I am binding the strong man, and it's time for his house to be plundered, by which he means, you will be rescued. I've come to liberate, I've come to be a ransom for many, that you uh, might be rescued. But we still might say, okay, I understand all that. Uh, But what really is uh, the meaning or the implication So, so what? Jesus defeated Satan, great. What are the implications if that is true? Let's make sure as we we enter the answer to this last question what difference does understanding this make? That we're all on the same page in understanding Christus Victor. It is the notion that at creation, we were created as the king and queen of creation, or our first parents were. They abdicated that authority and Satan received dominion over this world. That dominion continued as God slowly and gradually worked his plan throughout redemptive history until Jesus arrives on the scene. And the principalities and the powers don't necessarily really understand what Jesus is doing on the scene. But God has entered Satan's realm. And so Satan can do with Jesus what he wishes. And as he slays him, he doesn't realize that he has foolishly played into the hands of of God's divine plan. This is perhaps why Paul says that in the cross of Christ, he has made the powers a laughingstock. Because they have so foolishly cooperated in the redemption of of humanity. Now, boys and girls, you probably understand... Christus Victor, better than many of the adults here, uh, particularly if you've spent any time in Narnia. And what do I mean? For C.S. Lewis, Christus Victor was the, uh, was the greatest lens by which to understand the atonement. And so what happens? Uh, the four children go to Narnia, and one, Edmund, becomes a traitor. He betrays his brother and his sisters to the White Witch. So what's the law of Narnia? That when you become a traitor, you belong to the White Witch. You are her property. Well, Aslan comes, and how is Edmund to be rescued? Aslan trades his life for Edmund's. And by uh, dying in Edmund's place, not only releases Edmund from the captivity or powers of the White Witch, but does what? Fulfills a deeper law fulfills a deeper magic of of which the white witch was not aware and is surprised by, and as a result, her entire power and rule is undone. She has cooperated unbeknownst to herself in the end of her reign. That's a beautiful uh, parable, beautiful picture, right, of what is Christus Victor. But still, we have raised the question, if we understand this, what are the differences? Well, I will give you three. Number one, part of the beauty of understanding Christus Victor is understanding how profoundly loved we are. Because to really understand uh, Christus Victor, we understand that we we are traitors. You know, we often, we sometimes think about our sin and it's very easy for us, of course, to think about someone who is a much worse sinner than we are. And to demiss our sin. But to to enter Christus Victor calls calls us back to remember, that no, we are the worst kind of sinner. We are traitors. You know, I've always wanted to. I'm ashamed. I've never read Dante's Inferno. Maybe this year. But I do know that Dante uh, reserves the last level of hell uh, for uh, one of the characters there is Brutus. And it's because he betrayed his friendship to Caesar. For Dante, the worst, the greatest offenders are those who are traitors. Which, of course, that's who we all are. Right? Betraying God right, to worship something else. And yet it's God who runs. It's, it's Aslan who lays his life down for Edmund, and it's God who runs after you and in love wants to rescue you. Now, I would encourage you not simply to slough that off, but to actually... Think and meditate upon what it is to be loved to that extent. I have a a, a very good friend, and he uh, he's in ministry, and he uh, grew up in a, a pretty pretty dysfunctional home, which of course he bears the marks of as he entered into adulthood. But as he entered ministry and went through seminary, he would he would handle it. He would uh, he'd figure things out. He would obey. He would lead people. Uh, to Christ, and had a remarkably successful ministry. Uh, from one perspective, the things kind of fell apart. He went to his twentieth high school reunion, and he had a bit too much to drink, and he started sharing kisses with someone who wasn't his wife. And he uh, he got out of that situation. He went and sobered up. He drove home in the middle of the night, and he immediately confessed uh, to his wife. Now you can better believe they had a very difficult road, right? That isn't something that's going to be handled in a quick or easy way. But he is a new person. And he would be the first to tell you that one of the reasons he's a new person is because even in the midst of all of the hardship, right, he never doubted the love and forgiveness of his wife. In other words, for all these years, right, of him attempting to be the person he thought he was supposed to be. It was in his failure and receiving love that he knew he did not deserve that actually transformed him. And that is what you need to hear, particularly if you are relating to God and saying, well, yes, I know God loves me, right? But I'm just going to go and make sure that I do what I'm supposed to do. And then really I think that he owes me. And ultimately, if you go down that road, you realize that you can't possibly do that. You can't manufacture obedience. Let's learn from the children's lesson right? that you can't not sin. And it's because all kinds of forces are rallied against you in your attempt not to sin. What transforms your heart in the midst of that? It's the love of the one who would be victorious in his death. Number two. Run to the victorious one, right? And I already alluded to it a little bit. But remember what we're confessing in Christus Victor. We were helpless and hopeless, and Jesus had to be the one who won the day for us. We confess that by faith, and then we run and try to be our own hero every day. Instead, he invites you. He's labored on your behalf because he loves you and he wants you to run to him and to say, Jesus, I cannot possibly be victorious in this. Would you please be victorious on my behalf? Would you help me to find myself in you rather than trying to stage some victory or some win on my own accord? And number three, we realize that Christus Victor helps us to remember the cosmic nature of salvation and not just its individual nature. Now, some of you are probably a little, when are we going to talk about penal substitution? All right, we'll get there, we'll get there. right? And we're not saying that sin isn't a big deal, and we're not saying that atonement um, and payment of sin and uh, expiation, appropriation, if you know what those are, we're, we're going to talk about all that, right? But I want you to, to think, if you, can't, if you pitch your tent right, in the land of penal substitution and you neglect Christus Victor then you, you enter this world in which salvation is almost entirely individualistic, right? Your biggest problem is what? Your sin. Jesus has come and paid for your sin. It's all handled. So you try not to sin, but basically you're just waiting for things to be wrapped up, right? You're kind of like, uh, you know, to borrow uh, Zach's analogy from David Imagine David defeating Goliath and the Israelites just standing there, Right? After David defeats Goliath, the Israelites charge the Philistines, right? They believe it's a symbol that they have won and will be led in victory. But if we don't remember Christ's victory and the cosmic nature of this, we act like people who have received a ticket to something are just waiting for the ride, right? Like being in an amusement park. You're standing in line. You've got your ticket. It's guaranteed. At some point, the ride's going to commence and you're going to go to glory. And in the meantime, you have to figure out how to occupy your time Because you're bored. And so you look at your phone, or you watch other people, or you play a game, right? And isn't that how we go through life so often? And that we think, well, my salvation is secure. The ride happens sometime in the future. What am I going to do in the meantime? Well, I'm going to sign my family up for 18 million activities. I'm going to pour myself into work, or I'm going to watch an enormous amount of TV or read novels in which I escape unendingly, we fill the time because we're not actually participating in the campaign that Jesus is leading us in. We think, wow, I lack purpose. I feel kind of aimless. For almost a year, I've been a little bit frustrated because I've been bored since I finished my uh, doctorate ministry. I keep saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I finally realize this is the wrong question. I keep thinking about what do I want to do rather than what should I be doing to engage the kingdom. And it was as if scales fell off my eyes. I said, of course, I've been so narcissistic and self-centered right? to look beyond and to actually participate in the campaign. Satan's been defeated. That defeat is not finalized until the end of time. And in this in-between times, we've been called to participate in that cosmic warfare and stand against the gates of Hades. What are you doing? Right? It's upon the rock of Peter and the apostles that Christ builds his church against which the gates of Hades will not stand. What are you doing to wage war against the gates of Hades? Maybe instead of figuring out how much money you can leverage to vacation this year, you can talk about how much money you can leverage to India. And maybe instead of signing up for another activity or another sport, right, you can ask, how can we participate with helping hands? John Bailey is going to be here the last Sunday of the month speaking between services. Right? This is the entity that offers the most care for the poor and disenfranchised in our community. And perhaps you can labor right, and unify yourself to the one who says, when you clothe the naked and feed the hungry right, and visit the prisoner, you do so unto me. One sweet, perhaps encouraging story. There's a girl in our body. She had a birthday. Instead of asking for presents for her birthday, she asked that everyone coming would make a donation to the adoption fund. Right? In some ways, a small act. right? But a sacrifice of rights and privileges in which what child isn't just waiting to receive as much as they possibly can, right? and instead diverting those funds, encouraging people to participate in the kingdom of God. From one perspective, small perhaps... But do not miss what she is doing. That girl picked up a battle axe and threw it into the gates of Hades. This is the point of Christus Victor. He's won the battle and calls us to pursue and carry it out. How will you do that? What will you do? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the victor over all things. Satan and sin and death have been conquered because you are the victorious warrior king. We thank You that You are our King and our priest and pray that You would nourish us at this table this morning as we come to feast both with You and upon You, for we know that there is no life and there is no victory apart from You. So would You please meet us here? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.